Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I say fucking shit only for one reason. People do. If you've never fucked, shit. If you've never shit, fuck. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, apparently Apple employs an in-house philosopher to teach at, quote-unquote, Apple University. What would you be willing to do for a chance to take his job? <laughs> Who would you be willing to kill? I mean, I'd work my way up all the way to Tim Cook. <laughs> I, this is when I read about this. Like, I'm not an envious man. I'm not a jealous. <laughs> I, I fucking Are hate this not? guy for having the job that I want. No, no I have very little yeah, jealousy. I would say even right. even true. though, let's talk about this. Even though we just got an email goading me that you have a Wikipedia page and I don't. Uh, yes, <laughs> this has been the elephant in the room. There's not a lot of details on the Wikipedia page. I've been not telling you because I didn't want you to. Yeah, no. That. So, <laughs> very sweet of you. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so, yeah, someone put that up a while ago. And feel free to fill in certain details and also to create one for Dave. Yeah. So he doesn't I've, feel left out. And, for, of course, for very bad wizards. But to show you how envy, how non-envious I am, there two things two things happen. It might be the same person. Somebody said, how does it feel like that Tamler has more followers than you on uh, Twitter? They they didn't even copy you on it. They just <laughs> they just tweeted <laughs> yeah, it to me, <laughs> and uh, and then they they sent that email. And my honest reaction was, I almost tweeted it back out and copied you. Like, yeah, Tamler's a better follow. <laughs> I tweet. I've tweeted like fifty things. I think I'm a good follow because I don't tweet too often, which is like that's like you necessary condition for yeah. me to follow anyone. They can't tweet too often. Yeah. Um, the people I do follow that tweet too often, I've muted and I've just forgotten that I follow them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Mute. Mute is essentially just a passive aggressive unfollow. <laughs> right, because like but, when do you go and unmute somebody you know but back to apple university <laughs> so yeah no i i don't know what this so so this is based on um i i heard it on one of my nerd uh apple podcasts and it was a quartz article that we'll link to that was saying that one of the things that's weird about this philosopher's job is that no matter 
apparently reporters have tried multiple times to get him to do an interview about what he does and Apple won't let him. What are they afraid of? That's I, what I, I don't it, get. Like it, the, that we'll find out that Tim Cook is really into Gettier cases. I don't know. What are they hiding? What do you think goes on? That's the other thing. Is So we don't have any idea what goes on. And there was this, apparently Quartz was this website, right? They, yeah. um, they've been trying to do this for two years. So, so the Apple philosopher right now, before you find a way for him to have an accident, <laughs> is um, Joshua Cohen. Yeah. And he wanted to give an interview, but was not... Uh, permitted to right but right he thought he could he was like oh yeah sure and then he ran it through apple pr and they're like no you can't um and so apparently he's only given a few public talks since he got hired in apple but i don't think he publishes and this was the part that really made me jealous um that that he doesn't have to publish but what does he have to yeah he i don't know what he does i mean so apple university so from I guess this is speculation is that he 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 speaks to employees who can take classes. Apparently, Apple University is just like an internal, uh, basically an internal way to get to get some education if you're an employee of Apple. He, he he must also help them come up with like internal philosophies. Like this is this is what people are speculating. But this is what I want to ask you: What the hell would a philosopher have to do? Like what 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 in God's name is the philosopher helping Apple come up with a philosophy of? So I think it's to like make them feel like they can go home and sleep at night and look their families in the eye when even though like what they're doing depends on the labor of. Seven-year-old <laughs> kids that are locked in a basement. So, uh, yeah. like, I mean, Which I don't is, know. Like, maybe it's that. Maybe it's that they're trying to figure out how to convince the world that there is a AI existential threat oh, yeah. to humanity. And so, oh yeah, they, we got to do. Well, we have to talk about that, but for another time. Another time. The, the great, yeah, like, the great conspiracy. Um, but so so here, though, is where I really disagree with the Quartz article that's complaining about not being able to talk uh, to this philosopher. Um, the, the author says that uh, preventing him from engaging with the press, it's clear the company doesn't appreciate the, fa- the value of unrestrained philosophical discussion. And um, it's his philosophy skills or whatever is being used for the good of the company rather than for the value of knowledge in itself. And basically they're saying that academics at its heart is about sharing stuff and like this is distorting what an academic should be. And I think that's absurd. Like it's absurd. <laughs> like Which part though? Because it's true that no university could get away with re- just not allowing their professors to talk to the press about what they're working on, right? Yeah. Uh, no, of course, of course not. Um, but there are so many like PhDs in, in across a wide variety of disciplines, usually the hard sciences and engineering that get hired by companies who do work for those companies. And it ends up being the intellectual property of those companies. They're not allowed to talk about what they're doing. It's not a weird thing and it's not violating the spirit uh, in which they got their PhD. I think there's something ab- about maybe him being a philosopher that makes this author feel weird about it. But I think if anything, we should be championing the fact that a corporation would seek to hire somebody with the skills of a philosopher. 
for whatever they're doing. And, and I think really importantly that we're pumping out so many PhDs, we have to prepare them for jobs outside of academia. And that's the reality of a corporate job. You can't just, right. You have to check with them before you talk to the outside. Right. World. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I would want to know before I drank the apple Kool-Aid that you are kind of bloated from, I would want to know what exactly he does there, what he's, what he's doing, what his role is, what the... Yeah, I'm not even that suspicious because what could a philosopher possibly be doing that would make... You know, if they had hired a virologist or something, you know, mm-hmm. and they weren't <laughs> letting us talk to them, I'd be like, what the fuck? If they had hired someone who actually could do anything, like, <laughs> yeah. is that, that's your point? I mean, one way to look at it is I feel much better knowing that perhaps uh, my iPhone, ha- the, the child labor has been justified by a philosopher. It's almost like, you know, water that's been blessed is now holy water. Like a philosopher who's justified the child labor is, is making me feel better. I think this is ethical. Next. That's his job. <laughs> I championed this. And the truth is he's probably getting paid half a million dollars a year. So, Would you want that job? I'm kind of just playing it up that I would um, because I don't know. I, I, I value the freedom that I have. I've, I've certainly, like I've worked with corporations before and it's a, such a different culture Yeah, that it's, that it's, it's not what I'd want to do full time. I mean, there is a price at which I would. Let's not, let me let me be absolutely clear. So we've established that you're. <laughs> we've established I'm a whore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Would you? I I I wouldn't. And like, it, I don't no, even really need to know what he does to say that. There's, I can't imagine that I would enjoy that in in, in any way, shape, or form. I, I, it just sounds like something that like I'm built to hate. My what life. if he let you keep podcasting for Very Bad Wizards? I, like, if what? I could do that and still yeah. have that job, so just, and, you, I'm and you'd make like, like you make like I don't know look, two million dollars made... a year, a million dollars a year or something. If you do that, I I would guess maybe four hundred thousand dollars, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so I would say that I definitely wouldn't do it. It's not. It's like it really. I, there isn't really enough money. Maybe there is if you got up to the point where I could. But I, it's like the George the Chemist, like the Bernard Williams case of George the Chemist, where he has to work for a chemical weapons factory, right? Even though that means abandoning all his projects. That's what it feels like to me, mostly. Do you know anything about this um, Cohen guy? I thought it was a different guy who I hated. I think also named Cohen. And I hate him not for good reasons. I ran into him when I was on the job market as a grad student. And he was just kind of a dick to me as people who are professors tend to be, you know, when grad students are trying to like... To ingratiate uh, them. You're trying to kiss them. Yeah, ass. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it turns out it's not that guy. So uh, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> <laughs> That's really anti-Semitic of you to just assume that this was the same Cohen. Let me ask you this. Now, we forgot to say what we're talking about today. We're oh, yeah. talking about a William James article, The Will to Believe, um, and about belief more generally uh, belief without evidence, belief with insufficient evidence, whether that's rational or not, 
Um, so with, but I wanted to ask you one thing before we get to that. You said with all the PhDs we're pumping out, like we should yeah. hopefully have these other job opportunities. And that's certainly true. But I've noticed in academic Twitter and the academic world in general, this almost obsession with telling students that they shouldn't go into to get a PhD because the job market is so tight, because the odds are so stacked against them. It's like everybody feels like it's their solemn duty to do that. And I'm not in favor of doing that. Like I feel like they're adults and our job is to give them the information, but also to inspire them if they want to do it, not to uh, freak them out already more than they're freaked out. But, but setting that aside, why is this seem to be particular to academia or is it particular to academia? Cause so it, cause I know, I know, I know this, the sentiments that you're talking about that get expressed, but I have to say that like, I don't see that as a very common, at least in my feed. And maybe it's, maybe the difference is that, um, in, you know, in psychology, we need the grad students. If, if anything, I see complaints that, we're not treating them well because like we're essentially a, a pyramid scheme and we should be paying them more because they're they're working for us and we we need them so like i think everybody is is has yeah. an incentive to to accept graduate students and what they're doing is they're fighting against the like knowledge that we're kind of fucking them if we tell all of them that there's going to be jobs we're we're putting too many out so that's yeah. a totally valid uh, sentiment, I think, is to, you know, fight against the trend to add more PhD programs and pump them out at a rate, especially when it's self-serving, so that, that you know, where you know that there's just not enough jobs for right. them. So, so I get that. I, I still see, in, maybe, and it is more philosophy and humanities oriented, there is this don't listen to your professors. They're the lucky ones that got the tenure track jobs. Just all these horror stories about what people have gone through. And they're all true. It just strikes me that that's true of any career, right? Yeah, like, that, that's it's actually... Not, like a, to a, make it as a journalist in today's world is the odds are stacked against you immensely. To make it as a filmmaker, to make it as an entrepreneur. I mean, like as everything, there's... Uh, yeah. why, why is academia and maybe humanities especially uh taking this on themselves w with such fervor i i mean i i don't know i suspect that maybe part of it is that like suppose that you want to you have like big ambitions to be a musician um uh, maybe it's it's less zero sum like you might make it a musician as a musician, the odds are against you, but it's not like if there is one person who's a successful musician that lowers your chances, but we know exactly how many professorships there are likely to be. And, um, and it's in the aggregate, I think there's a little bit of guilt, but also <laughs> academic Twitter guilt. has like some, yeah, exactly. But academic Twitter has some real salty, bitter people on it just like with everything else. Like it's probably not a good reflection. In fact, I saw uh, Mickey Inslicht, uh, the other half of two psychologists, four beers. He drinks. He tried. To, he's the one that actually drinks. He's the one who actually drinks. Yeah. He tried to, um, 
to to tweet a corrective by saying, you know, I had a great time in grad school. I love what I do. I love my job. I love, you know, as as hard as it might have been sometimes. And he got so much pushback from people who wanted him to shut up because as a white-ish man, um, right. he's with a job. He's he's going to be happy and that thought accusing him of undermining sort of the misery that other people uh, have experienced. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like you just don't see that in other fields. Yeah. It's been bothering me because it does feel like you're almost not allowed to say, to try to cheer people on and inspire them. And I just don't see that. Like, I, you know, it's not like, Martin Scorsese is has to constantly remind everyone that the odds were so stacked against him and he was the lucky one and he just at a certain point that just becomes like you're stressing them out and making them more anxious than they already are. But yeah, I but I I do think there's a real difference there in that um you know if you if you're trying to say to be an actor like you might ha- you might fall prey to like all of the biases that that you have a better chance than most other people and that might be fine, but you're, you're not under the same illusions, um, that, that I think, I think it's pretty clear that it's really, really hard to become a successful actor or musician or NBA player or whatever in a way that it's not clear when you're a first year PhD student. Um, and that like, we're not, we're not doing a good job of communicating the reality in the way that the harsh reality is, you know, there's plenty of discussion about how like the odds are stacked against you to be a successful artist. I mean, it, how much clearer could it be, given that it's all anybody talks about, uh, that the odds are stacked against you getting a tenure track job in a, in a place that you want to live? Then it's good that people are talking about the odds being against you. Because if they weren't, then they wouldn't know. Like, I don't know why it would be clearer as an actor or a journalist, somebody who's trying to break into journalism, this amorphous thing that keeps, like, changing every few years and more and more money just gets sucked out of it if you're a writer. I think there are a ton of journalists who are telling young people to, like, be very wary of going into journalism. Yeah, maybe. I almost feel like I have to at least try to represent some kind of positivity because people are going into thinking that grad school is just going to be this miserable, stress-induced, 80-hour-a-week job that will result in nothing but heartbreak, you know? Yeah, and the truth is that, like, entry-level corporate jobs... You know, my sister Suck. was a, a corporate um, attorney coming out of law school. They just don't have time to complain about it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the, the uncharitable way of reading all of this, that I'm this phenomenon is that there is a level of entitlement among academics that there's not among um, people who actually have to go out in the real world and make uh, their career there. I don't think that that's exactly fair. If you know the people who are doing it, that's not who that's not what they're about. That's not who they are. But it is, you know, for some people maybe some kind of possibility. Hey, we we went to school for 5 years and yeah, we only and we got paid a stipend, but that's it. Like we deserve a job or something. It's like that's not how the world works. Yeah. I don't I think that there is there's 
a lot of people are bitter and disappointed and a lot of them for good reason perhaps um it's, but so when i say this it's not to undermine that people did have i mean people had miserable times in my graduate program i know that for a fact like oh there yeah were people who were absolutely miserable i just i just wasn't and you know for for probably a whole variety of reasons that are outside of my control but i always also was just tickled that somebody would pay me any amount of money to get a degree and that's even with all of the you know like i had so much stress when i was defending my dissertation on the job market that i broke like i literally broke out in hives <laughs> yeah and for like weeks couldn't get rid of those hives i had to go and get like a shot of prednisone to get rid of them and so i know anxiety but but i also just really there's, like, there's, cry, there's a lot of crying in the shower on the job market is, yeah <laughs> I, I and i tend to forget the the misery of it but i don't i just don't know that that misery is particularly special compared to any other young person trying to find their way in in a career yeah, I guess that's you know. the thing. It's like you're telling people not to do this, and but the implication is then, okay, they should go do something else. Well, what is that? What is this career that you think won't have the same sorts of issues that academia has? And that's the thing I'm not sure about. Right. But, um, well, then they get to complain at the junior prof level and then they get to complain. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I am all for bringing people in the very beginning, you know, when you're doing your orientation or whatever and saying explicitly, this is uh, what the job market looks like in our field. This right. is how many. Absolutely. New, these yeah. how many PhDs there are. This is how many. Right. And and like go in eyes wide open but don't tell people if they love you know if you love shakespeare and you want to just be a nerd who studies shakespeare and you get into a phd funded program to analyze shakespeare and uh, that's five great years or six years that you might really enjoy and if you have to get like a job in regular corporate america after that because the job market sucks then it might suck, but you it really could be the case that you love that you got to spend six years studying. Right. You know? And that's, right. Uh, and now I guess the idea being, well, but what about those six years? People talk about opportunity costs and right. And you could, right. You could have been making whatever six figures you want to make. Had you spent those six years working your way up? Um, but as long as they go in knowing their chances, then I, like, I think, yeah, you could have spent six years working at, at this corporation and making more money now, but you wouldn't have gotten that, <laughs> the ability to, to, you know, when else in life can you, grad school is this like wonderful sort of extended adolescence where you, it's a time where you can spend really sort of with a flexible schedule doing, studying what you want to study. And, and I know this is maybe not true in other disciplines where, you know, some biology lab, you have to get up at seven every morning and clean out the beakers or something but but by and large you're studying what you want to study or else you wouldn't be in that right you you just wouldn't be doing that um, well yeah we're gonna get shit for this i can i can i'm just predicting this right now we're gonna get some <laughs> shit for this um i can just feel the anger on twitter you already hear the emails yeah. floating um let's take a break and we'll be right back to talk about william james
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to thank our listeners for all their wonderful forms of support. Thank you for all the emails, the tweets, uh, the discussion. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you could email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You could also tweet to us at verybadwizards at tamler at peas. We promise, like we always say, we read everything, but we don't always have time to reply, but we still very much appreciate it. You could also join our lively uh, communities in the Facebook Very Bad Wizards page or on the subreddit. Um, subre- the subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. Or you can support us in more tangible ways if you would like to do that. You can go to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. You can either give us a one-time or a recurring donation via PayPal. And finally, you can become one of our beloved Patreons and go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash verybadwizards. And um, you'll see there a few of the bonuses that you get once you become a patron of our show. Again, thanks to all of you for your support and all the ways in which you show us support. We really, really appreciate it. And um, it's what keeps us going. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, William James article. This is a very interesting essay that is still relevant today in so many different ways and is kind of a classic of epistemology and the epistemology of religious belief. So it's a it's a talk that William James gave to the philosophical clubs of Yale and Brown University. Um, and he gave it in 1896. And the way he introduces it, he he takes his audience to be a free-thinking crowd that is very scientific and hard-nosed, kind of new atheist in their <laughs> orientation for how they view the world. And he says, um, I have brought with me tonight something like a sermon on justification by faith to read to you. I mean an essay in justification of faith, a defense of our right to adopt a believing attitude in religious matters, in spite of the fact that our merely logical intellect may not have been coerced. So he thinks there are certain kinds of beliefs that we can hold and not be irrational and, um, and not make some sort of moral error, even if we don't have sufficient evidence to believe that it's true. There are a lot of puzzle pieces in this argument. One of the distinctions that he makes are between live hypotheses and dead hypotheses. And he says that there are a certain class of beliefs or hypotheses that we that are alive to us. We're capable of thinking that they are true. It's like an actual option epistemologically, right? Like, yeah. yeah, and 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 why it's an actual option depends on your personal history, maybe your temperament, culture, and time. You know, he says it's not a live hypothesis to believe certain Islamic religious beliefs, just because it's not any part of my tradition. There's nothing in me that's drawn to it in any way. But he says to an Arab, however, that hypothesis is among the mind's possibilities. It is alive. 
there's just certain things I don't know, like for us, uh, that we we don't know whether they're true, but we're at least capable of believing that they're true. Um, and then there's other beliefs that there's no way we could believe they're true. So that's one distinction between live and dead hypotheses. This, the second step, as I see it, is to say among our, in the category of our hy live hypotheses, we can choose to adopt, to believe them. That is a step that we are capable of doing. So he takes what is known in epistemology now as a kind of voluntarist approach to belief. Voluntarist meaning that you, we can choose to believe something. Belief is not just something we have no control over. And this is where James introduces what will end up being a critical feature of of his eventual pragmatism, but certainly central to this argument, which is that for him, a belief is something that causes action. And so if a belief contains within it a tendency to act at all, then it's a live belief, like a live option. Um, yeah. And, and that, that sort of view of, of the, the consequences of a belief in terms of action, um, I think will form the foundation for the pragmatism. So at one point he says, as a rule, we disbelieve all facts and theories for which we have no use. Clifford's cosmic emotions find no use for Christian feelings. Huxley belabors the bishops because there's no use for sacerdotalism in his scheme of life. What he's saying there, and like I don't even know what these things are, Huck sacerdotalism is just having priests yeah okay newman on the other on the contrary goes over to romanism because a priestly system is for him an organic need and delight so there is this kind of idea that there is something about our expressive our emotions and our temperament that uh will restrict the kinds of beliefs that we're going to be open to and therefore can choose to believe, and the kinds that are just excluded. Um, right. Us. And by the way, we'll put a link to a free full-text PDF. He says, when we look at certain facts, it seems as if our passional and volitional nature lay at the root of all of our convictions. So he really does think that your propensity, your emotional propensities are driving the things that even you would consider as beliefs and eventually driving the beliefs that you pick up. Exactly. Okay, so that's another piece of the puzzle. Let me just add, add one other puzzle piece, and then I think we can at least try to piece together how he makes his argument. And that is that there are certain beliefs that we can't be agnostic about. Uh, we can't suspend judgment on them. Suspending judgment is the same as, as disbelieving it. Right. So uh, in this category, he thinks uh, certain moral questions are like this. And, and whether there is moral truth at all is like this. You, you, you have to uh, take a stand because not taking a stand is also taking a stand. Right. Um, he also says, like, if, if somebody is proposing marriage, if you say, well, I don't know if marriage will be a good idea for me. I need to wait and get to know you uh, for another few years, and then I can... I can believe that we would be a good match for each other. He's like, well, that's at that point, it's not going to work. You might as well just say, I don't believe it because they're going to move on and try to find something 
Right, uh, you're saying you're saying no to the question. Will you marry me now? Yeah, you're saying <laughs> like no just, to the question. Yeah. Right, <laughs> and importantly, I think he thinks religious belief, as he defines it, is like this too. Because if you suspend judgment, then you are denying yourself the good that comes with religious belief. Um, one of the ways he defines religious belief is that it's better to believe in the in the eternal and the eternal aspects of it for you right now here on earth that's defined that's definitional that's like essential for what counts as religious belief and so if you suspend judgment you are denying yourself the benefit that would come with religious belief being true so that's just the same as being an atheist on this question and that's as close as he gets to Pascal's wagery. Yeah, my yeah, that's right. I just think the part of Pascal's wager that he rejects is the heaven hell like difference in the yeah. the overwhelming difference between you know the eternal torments of hell and the that part he is uh, you know the afterlife plays no role in his wager here. Right. So given that being agnostic about religion, you are essentially being an atheist, you are denying that it is true, and you might be right, but you might go on the other side too. And where you go on that side, crucially for James, isn't a matter of like morality, it's not a matter of pure justification, it is just a fact about you and your passionate nature and what kinds of hypotheses are alive for you and what kinds of hypotheses. The view that he's arguing against, we might call now evidentialism. Yeah, so I talked with a colleague about this paper yesterday, Luis Oliveira. He's our epistemologist in the philosophy department. And he was explaining to me... Um, this view, evidentialism, that has a an old variety and a new variety. The old variety is represented in James's article by Clifford, uh, someone named Clifford. And according to this view, which James is arguing against, as almost like a moral stance, we should not believe any hypotheses that we don't have sufficient evidence for. It insults the progress of science, it insults the progress that we've made human beings in this marvelous quest to discover the truth. Yeah, and and, a, and James makes it clear that what he thinks, he really believes that there, uh, there, is, there is no belief that could meet that sort of evidence, evidential criteria. There's nothing in the really nothing in the world that people agree upon that that is believed because we have sufficient evidence to believe it he thinks that there's always some sort of step of faith um in any of our beliefs so wait, wait so I, I i didn't get that from my reading so where do you find that in section six he says he says the only truth that skepticism leaves is the president that the present phenomenon of consciousness exists. Then he says, apart from abstract propositions of comparison, such as two and two are the same as four propositions which tell, which tell us nothing by themselves about concrete reality. We find no proposition ever regarded by anyone as evidently certain that has not either been called a falsehood or at least had its truth sincerely questioned by someone else. But that doesn't mean, but he's using that as 
as trying to undermine the evidentialism by saying like, look, everything still requires some, some point where, where you have to give up on evidence. Right. But I don't see that as the same thing as saying we don't believe any of our beliefs because we have sufficient evidence for them. It just means that at some point, somebody had to not have sufficient evidence, even just in order to discover what the evidence was for that belief. You start out with a hypothesis. Some of them, the scientist needs to believe they're true in order to start looking for evidence to devote two years of their life to trying to find <laughs> out if it's true. Yeah, his example of the chemist. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that what he is trying to say is even the chemist has to have faith that something is true, right? So he's saying that the belief in, belief in something because there is enough evidence for it is just not the way that we actually know things. Well, yeah, I just see that as a little different. But let's, let's set that aside. Let's, here's the yeah. Clifford quote that James uh, cites. And it's just, I, I think it, it really does. Like, it's just like a new atheist a hundred years before the new atheist. <laughs> Belief is desecrated when given to unproved and unquestioned statements for the solace and private pleasure of the believer. Whoso would deserve well of his fellows in this matter will guard the purity of his belief with the very fanaticism of jealous care, lest at any time it should rest on an unworthy object and catch a stain which can never be wiped away. If a belief has been accepted on insufficient evidence, even though the belief be true, as Clifford on the same page explains, the pleasure is a stolen one. It is sinful because it is stolen in defiance of our duty to mankind. That duty is to guard ourselves from such beliefs as from a pestilence, which may shortly master our own body and then spread to the rest of the town. It is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. I mean, take out the, the kind of flowery... Uh, rhetoric. Couldn't you see like Sam Harris, uh, guest next time, and Richard Dawkins saying something like that? I mean, we don't need to see Sam Harris. I, I don't even need to go that far. I think this is actually way closer to what I believe than what James is saying. Because you're I, kind and, of a new atheist. <laughs> except for that I'm not. Except for that I think that but like, should we just should we just state our, our uh, tendencies sure. here to believe? Although we're not done getting through the argument, I think that James is is wildly off here. I think that it's it relies on a particular straw man view of what what evidence is how evidence is supposed to give rise to belief um, that he then uses to sort of sneakily say, well, then we could believe in Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So I completely disagree with that take on it. I don't. Number one, I don't think he's trying to say we can believe in Jesus. Or I, <laughs> he very much is saying you can believe in Jesus without without violating, you know, what the grounds for appropriate derivation of belief. Well, I don't think so because he, the way he defines religious belief, first. She, meaning religion, says that the best things are the more eternal things. And then the second affirmation of religion is that we are better off even now if we believe the first affirmation to be true. So there's nothing about, you know, a particular... No, uh, I, don't, I, mean, I don't mean to say James is defending belief in Jesus. I'm saying James is defending most religious beliefs. Um, that are live hypotheses for us. And that would include for a large portion of his audience, a belief in Jesus. So I'm, so I'm saying, 
Like, right. Okay, what do you think as a straw man, given that you said the Clifford view is your own view? Well, the, this, the, the whole argument by James sort of depends on him saying, you know what's really unreasonable to think that you need 100% evidence to believe something to be true. So he says, you'll never have full evidence. Nobody can ever get 100% evidence for anything. And so b because you have to admit that that's the case, then uh, why are you preventing people from believing things um, without evidence? The straw man that I'm referring to is this belief in the dichotomy, this completely dichotomous thing. Like you can believe something if you're 100% every piece of evidence that, that is required to convince you that something is true versus you can't, you just like can believe things without evidence. So when do you, where do you see him attribute to the evidentialist this view that you need 100%? Certainty. I mean, he, he, he doesn't explicitly say you need a hundred percent, but this is the way that he's treating, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Cause I underlined the relevant passages, but he is, he is essentially saying by saying no one ever has enough evidence to believe something for sure. Um, therefore it's okay to believe something with no evidence. I just don't see that as his argument. If I, I, if I thought that was his argument, then I would also be with you and say that that's not a good argument. Um, I do think one, one kind of issue with evidentialism is a vagueness about what counts as sufficient evidence. And if you don't have any sense of what counts as sufficient, then if you don't have any clear demarcation point, then there's going to be other considerations that will um, have to play into whether or not you believe something. Now, you might think that there are clear cases on both sides uh, where we clearly have sufficient evidence or we clearly don't have sufficient evidence. But everything in between there, it seems like there's going to be some wiggle room that you can either believe or not uh, without knowing for sure whether you have sufficient evidence. Right, and it's that, but but it's that, I mean, I, I feel like you stated it well, that there are these extremes like no evidence and 100% evidence and then everything else in between. When having 90% evidence to believe something, all it means is that you, you know, you, you can be a fallibilist about your views. You could say like, well, look, all of my views are tentative. They're beliefs, but they're tentative because I know that there might be new evidence that comes to light that changes our mind. So the, there's a part where he uses a metaphor where he says, it is like a general informing soldiers that it is better to keep out of battle forever than to risk a single wound. He's referring to a particular kind of evidentialism where that he's characterizing as, um, this is in section seven, by the way, uh, that he's characterizing as, well, yeah, sure, you could walk around not believing anything until, uh, until you have 100% evidence, but that will essentially be like walking around not believing anything. And that would be like never, right? Okay, like, so I don't read it that part that way. So let, so just to back up a step here, that section come, is introduced with him distinguishing between two twin goals of, of epistemology. Mm -hmm. The first is discovering truth, and the second is avoiding error. And he says, these aren't the same goals, right? You could avoid error 
just by never believing anything that that would be the best way to avoid errors. So that's what that's that would be the way of maximizing your not getting into error. And then the second thing is to discover truth. And he says, and sometimes to discover truth, you have to take some risks. You have to believe certain things. This is like that, you know, like that chemist. Now, that's a that's a step that maybe you could question, but you have to believe certain things uh, on the possibility that they're true. And there, and then he says, where you fall on the spectrum of which is more important to you, avoiding error or are finding truth, that's going to be a matter of temperament. And people like Clifford really err on the side, or at least are at the extreme end of avoiding error. They're terrified of being wrong about something. And James says, you can be like that, but you don't have to be like that. You, and if you're too much like that, you are like the, the general um, in your the example you just raised. Yeah, I mean, I, like I... I sort of would like for him to have said you could be on the spectrum in the way that you just said it, but James doesn't treat it as a spectrum. He says, look, you can either choose to be somebody who needs, uh, who is so afraid of being duped that you believe nothing, or you can just say like, look, you there, you don't need all that evidence. You can, you, you're allowed to believe, um, things that don't have enough evidence, um, to qualify. And that's the thing where I'm like, you know, there are things that I believe that I, I just believe until a scientist tells me that I shouldn't believe it anymore. And I update it. But it's based on like, a, you know, like 98 percent belief on in science. And then there are things like that leprechauns are true that your grandma told you where it's like unless you really present the two options as either or um, you are leaving out a whole bunch of our life that should be guided by evidence and the weight of evidence. I, so I guess I just don't see the the either or here. So here's the passage. We may regard the, ch- the chase for truth as paramount and the avoidance of error as secondary, or we may, on the other hand, treat the uh, avoidance of error as more imperative, more imperative, not all imperative, but more imperative, and let truth take its chance. And what he's saying about Clifford is that he exhorts us to the latter course. Believe nothing, he tells us. Keep your mind in suspense forever rather than closing it on insufficient evidence and incur the awful risk of believing lies. Again, the insufficient evidence doesn't mean not 100% evidence. So it could be, like you said, that there's 98% or there's just a lot of evidence and very little countervailing evidence. But that doesn't mean that I, ha- he's demanding 100%. The point here is that someone like Clifford is more s- scared of believing a falsehood than he is of not believing something that, that, that could be true. Right. I mean, we're doing a little bit of exegesis here on James. I actually read that passage as not at all James saying, because throughout James never says anything about the weight of evidence or, or the subtleties in, in distinguishing something with a lot of evidence versus something with very little evidence. It would be nice if he had, because I think I would take his view a bit more seriously. But I take that passage that you read to be, look, you can make one of two errors. The balance with which you use one strategy over another, that of believing things without evidence versus not believing something until you have full evidence. Sufficient. That, that balance. Full. Yes, sufficient. Su- sufficient. Sufficient. But he thinks Clifford thinks that's, that 
he, he's saying Clifford is somebody who thinks you need full evidence. But, no, he but said full evidence would he be never sufficient. Says full. Just sure. enough. It, it doesn't. It doesn't threshold. matter. It, 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 right threshold. He thinks Clifford's threshold is very high to accept a belief, and that he is because of that threshold that he is uh, missing out on the 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 acquisition of truth for things that don't meet that threshold. And he thinks that's one strategy. You said a threshold. What I'm yeah. saying, full to mean sufficient here. Okay. I'm not saying I'm, yeah, I'm, like a hundred percent. Yeah, like that. You're that there's enough to convince anybody. You might have a mix of those two strategies, but neither of those strategies is actually a strategy where you say, "Do I believe something a little more when it's seventy percent evidence versus forty percent evidence?" You know, there is. There's. I don't see James ever making that distinction. Well, now, wait a minute. So there's a couple ways to interpret that. So you're right that he's not making a distinction like a Bayesian would be. Right. And and that, you know, that whole thing is not part of this essay. That idea where you can talk about belief in terms of probabilities. But the person that he's criticizing doesn't think in those terms either. He and, and and the evidentialist doesn't think in those terms. I think you're you're right in his is so long as I understand who the enemy that he's quoting this this Clifford guy. But I think that in doing that, he uh, probably neither Clifford nor James give I think in enough attention to the fact that you know it's really different. It's very different to believe that the Earth is flat than it is to believe, you know, that uh, the next coin flip will be whatever, 50% chance of being heads or tails, or that the sun will come. Like, there is just, there are levels of evidence that I think not only normatively we would say that we should use, but also that we just do use in our everyday life when we're making making decisions about what to believe or not. But the earth is flat is what James would say is another way of expressing what you're saying there is that's not a live hypothesis for belief. Yeah, that's why that's one reason I think in that distinction between a live hypothesis and a dead hypothesis, he's sneaking something in already because it certainly is a live hypothesis for some people. So regardless, because I do think there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of hyperbole in James that especially if you're not (laughs) If you don't find yourself initially intrigued by the argument, it's just going to be annoying. So at some point, I want to just talk about that writing style just in yeah. a historically interesting way. But yeah, I do think, though, you know, like the risk aversion, I think what he's uh, in the same way that, you know, I've complained about how Americans are too risk averse with uh, personal safety or physical harm. He's saying uh, epistemologists like Clifford are too risk averse. They're so worried about making a mistake. And James is saying, look, they're not, it's not s- such an awfully solemn thing to make a mistake. Yeah. I think, and, and I think that you're, you're right. That's, that is, that is what he's trying to say here. And maybe here is where someone like Sam would definitely be aligned with what I believe. Uh, there is a part where, um, uh, James is saying, um, you know, when he's saying like you can have one of these two strategies, might believe something to be true that isn't, or you could just like have a really high threshold and never believe anything. And but what's the danger? You know, like set set your threshold a bit lower. What's the what's the problem? And the the problem I think is that 
it introduces a category of beliefs that might have real actual damage. Right. And not just to you, but to others, right? Right. Like to, right. Uh, to your children. So this is, I think, a totally uh, legitimate criticism to make of James. He does not speak in terms of the destructive consequences of false beliefs. Right. He, like he's talking about it as if we're just individuals who are, you know, making personal decisions about, you know, what how we want to view the world. Now, I actually think that's why it's important that he takes such an abstract personal view of religion here. I take it that re- the kind of religion that he's talking about wouldn't justify, you know, the in- an inquisition or blowing up. <laughs> the, yeah, know, it's an interesting yeah. where he says where yeah, where when he describes what he means by like beliefs that give rise to good things. Yeah. Um and that that seems like uh, that's a very hard thing to try to put into practice. Um there was a part that really <laughs> was was weirdly prescient. Why do so few scientists, quote unquote, even look at the evidence for telepathy so-called? Because they think, as a leading biologist now dead once said to me, that even if such a thing were true, scientists ought to band together to keep it suppressed and concealed. It would undo the uniformity of nature and all sorts of other things without which scientists cannot carry on their pursuits. So one, th- this is close to home because of the the paper on... Right. <laughs> precognition that actually brought down social psychology. But I think that is, that is, I wrote next to it, UG, because yes, I, if I, that I, really I, were why we did not accept evidence for telepathy, it would be shitty. Right. Right. But, but I think what, what people say is like this, if you were to actually accept evidence, open my mind to evidence of telepathy, it would it would so undo everything we know about the nature of physics and time and causality that it would, it, it seems incredibly improbable. So from a Bayesian perspective, say, you would say like the chances of that being a true thing so low that it does, that, that you would need an overwhelming amount of evidence. Um, but if you did think it was true and you had that evidence, then you would, I, I like, that's a very unfair statement about science to say that they would, <laughs> try to deliberately suppress. <laughs> right. Like, don't let anybody know about the superpowers that exist. But, I mean, I guess we we do see examples of this, but it's not, it's more for political reasons that right. they would want to suppress <laughs> right, right, right. certain things. I was part of a, um, a committee where a student was presenting evidence um, looking at implicit bias that white people have toward black faces. Yeah. And across every study that she conducted, there was no evidence of bias using implicit or explicit measures ac- across four studies with like tons of subjects. It was highly powered and it was using measures that social psychologists have used traditionally to argue for the presence of bias and the reluctance to accept that that yeah. might be a finding. It really was sort of, uh, well... What went wrong in the measurement? Because obviously that's not true. (laughs) And and again, we've made this point before. 
you would think people would be happy that that was true. <laughs> exactly. I was like, you know, I'm not saying we live in a post-race world. I'm like, I'm convinced that nasty racism is alive and well. Right. But in this particular sample, on this particular task, like using our own rules, you didn't find it. <laughs> like you didn't right. find that kind of bias. I mean, it's the same. It's, it's such an ironic thing. It's like, and I get it. If uh, evidence comes out that Google is paying women more than men, it's like, oh no, there's right. something wrong the way you're measuring it. Or the, <laughs> you know, the Native American one that we talked about with Yoel way back where uh the majority of them weren't at all bothered by redskins mm-hmm. as the team name and it's like everybody's tearing that apart supposedly the same people who are tearing it apart should welcome that result the world is a better place if it's true but it, but i also get that their point is people will use it as yes a, that's as right a, as a means to block other attempts at greater justice uh, that's right okay but that so so that's a separate issue yeah. not related <laughs> to this i think that there are those things in james's article and i that one bugged me too but it's also not necessary in any way to his argument it is an extra bit of like fuck you to what we would now call the scientistic worldview uh <laughs> the absolutist about science that right. is just not necessary for his argument you know part of it is that this really depends on what is meant by something being true because if you do adopt a full-blown pragmatist approach to what truth is then this approach doesn't seem so unreasonable i am of the firm opinion that that there are things that are true independent of me that 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 i might discover or might not but the pragmatist view is really like does does your belief work in whatever way i'm defining work and that's that's sort of like a a a low bar for truth as we might use the word at least in science or in anybody who's a realist about anything. Yeah. Um, And I don't think it's one that is explicitly endorsed by James in this article. And I also don't think it's one that is required for his argument uh, to have its force. But I do think it's tacitly, tacitly believed and it's doing some of the work because his like, well, Okay, let me read. There's a passage that I think gets at the core of his his argument about believing in in religious uh, holding religious beliefs. When he's giving the example of he gives an example of of um, somebody who's unwilling to believe that another person likes them, yeah, and is constantly worried that they don't, and that this is he is being prevented from reaping all of the rewards of believing that somebody actually does like them. He says what you were saying, this is, you know, he's talking about like how an agnostic is, is preventing themselves from, from accepting the possibility of truth might as well be an atheist. He says, I cannot see my way to accepting the agnostic rules for truth seeking or willfully agreeing to keep my willing nature out of the game. I cannot do so for the plain, for this plain reason that a rule of thinking which would absolutely prevent me from acknowledging certain kinds of truths, if those kinds of truths truth were really there, would be an irrational rule. That for me is the long and short of the formal logic of the situation, no matter what the kinds of truth might materially be. And I think that here is close to at least what I was trying to say, which is that he is treating this as... Um, as to adopt a stance where you would need uh, a certain kind of evidence to believe something for him is 
takes him where, to the. He doesn't uh, talk about evidence here, right? He no, no, no. But about, he's talking like, about like having a, a rule of thinking that would absolutely prevent me from acknowledging certain kinds of truth. He is treating that. So he's saying that would be an irrational rule. Or again, I like I think that. Well, it would it be is, right, like a rule that prevented you from seeing truth. Right. What I'm what I'm there. saying is that he is he's he's characterizing the belief. If you don't allow yourself to believe something like a religious belief with like little to no evidence, then you are you are on the other side completely. You are adopting an irrational rule, and I think that that this this is false dichotomy that that he's relying on to make his argument where it seems so, like well yeah if you were like consistently unable to a- arrive at any belief it would be irrational but it's not like therefore uh, open yourself to religious beliefs right doesn't make sense i so what james is arguing is the s- strictness of the evidentialist view will make it impossible for uh, people to adopt certain beliefs, some of which are just going to be true, right? And then that is an irrational rule. Yeah. I mean, so, so this is why I'm saying, like, look, Clifford sounds to me just as wrong as James. I just think that he's using rhetorically the extremeness of the Clifford argument to argue what I think is another extreme, which is to say that it's justified to believe something with such little evidence altogether. Um, And I think he gets out of the, so right after that, he says, um, I confess, I do not see how this logic can be escaped, but sad experience makes me fear that some of you may still shrink from radically saying with me in abstracto that we have the right to believe at our own risk, any hypothesis that is live enough to tempt our will. I suspect, however, that if this is so, it is because you have got away from the abstract logical point of view altogether and are thinking, perhaps without realizing, of some particular religious hypothesis, which for you is dead. Like the freedom to, be- Yeah, but uh, the freedom, that's why I think it's really critical to say what does it mean to have a live or a dead hypothesis. Like yeah. he, He's really uh, making this sort of like uh, claim that it just, by, by dint of your disposition and your cultural upbringing... Um, a hypothesis might be live for you, and that might make it justified to believe in the absence of evidence. But then if somebody else has a live hypothesis because of their particular disposition and, and cultural upbringing, and that is completely in conflict, right? It is, you know, P and not P, right? Yeah. Um, that That both of those would be justified? Yeah, so I think... I think what he's saying is for many of us, especially people like us raised in the scientific tradition, um, me without a particular religious orientation, you with a religious, an initial religious orientation that you rebelled against. Part of being a live hypothesis for us is that there is some, at least some decent evidence for its truth. We don't necessarily know how much is sufficient for us to, you know, have to adopt it. Or maybe we're Bayesian and we come at it that way, you know, the Nate Silver, where we're just going to assign probabilities. But that's and that and that for us is a big part of what makes a, it's not all of what makes a hypothesis alive or dead, but it's part of it. It's like a necessary condition that it's not uh, something for which there is absolutely no evidence. And probably a lot of people are like that, and and that's fine. 
does he yeah. actually think that what makes a live hypothesis is some evidence? I th- I thought that he was arguing that what's a no, li- no, no. A live Just, hypothesis- I'm saying okay. that for us. That's okay. what that's part of for us and for a lot of people. You know, it's interesting. Part of like part of me is was surprised when you uh, referred to the the evidence that I would have had or anybody raised religious would have had for believing what they do, because, you know, in some deep sense, the reason that it stopped being a live hypothesis for me, it was because I was convinced that there is zero evidence <laughs> for the existence of God. Right. Like what I what I consider evidence right is just not met at all. And and that's why it became a dead hypothesis. So here's a question. What about for God forbid one of our one of our daughters is has a really serious illness and you know the doctor is saying, look, there's no really any hope here. This is something that uh, you don't recover from. And you want to believe and you, in fact, maybe do believe that they will recover. And it's, uh, it is kind of this thing. It's certainly it's a live hypothesis for you, even though there's no evidence. As far as you know, the doctor is right. Um, and, but it is really important for you to believe. And, I, I mean, one way of interpreting what James is saying is in a situation like that, under those circumstances, you have a right to believe it to really believe it to believe like that it's gonna come true and if it doesn't okay you were wrong but you're not in this kind of situation so concerned with avoiding error you would much rather believe take the the tiniest chance that it's true and believe it right but but so what if i mean i i fear that's a such an emotionally charged situation that it's hard for me to say well like i want to believe that my daughter's going to die but it really, you know, it is actually, I think, um, a good example in that this is something that, you know, my my aunt was a, a neonatologist um, in the neonatal infant care unit and had to all the time have these heartbreaking conversations with parents telling them, you know, your child was born with this particular problem. They won't make it six months yeah. Like, and, and they'd have to make this, but of course that's a statistical claim, right? It's now it might be 99% true. Um, but rarely will you have any more than that, but the decision to, it, there are consequences to continuing to hold out hope. Yeah. Um, th- right. You know, in a, in a less charged situation. You're, yeah. Like in dumb, in dumb and dumber, when she says there's a million to one chance that you'll, that I'll ever be with you. And he says, so you're saying I have a chance. Yeah, I I suppose that he could act as if it's true and it would just, you would keep stalking her. Um, For sure. <laughs> right. But on the flip side, and James points this out, there are certain beliefs that you have to believe against all odds for them to come true. Tottenham, the Spurs coming back from three goals <laughs> down to beat Ajax. Uh, they had to believe that they could do it, even though the odds were ma- incredibly stacked against them, probably for it to happen. And there are certain things like that where you have to believe it to be true just for it to come true. And maybe, you know, there's really no good evidence for it at the time that you adopt it. Right. There's a story about Kanye West um, that somebody uh, has. I forget who was telling the story, but it was like, you know, he was a no name. He was like, he was not anything. And uh, he was, he took a meeting with a, like a label, a rap label. 
because he was trying to get signed. And he like got up on the table and was rapping and he and he started saying like, I'm going to be like the best rapper alive. I'm going to sell millions of records. He's just like going off on how good he is and how, what an impact he's going to have. And of course no one believed it. Right. Right. Just, but he wasn't wrong. Like when you listen to what he was saying, like he did become that big right at some point um now that might, so it might be true for some some you know beliefs some some self-fulfilling prophecies it's certainly not the case for me believing that the spurs were going to win though um right it might be it, it, it and i you know it's kind of an empirical question i wonder like it's it's hilariously uh inappropriate for somebody to say like if a reporter said to like a super underdog if they said what do you think? Uh, what do you think your chances are of winning? If they said like pretty low, <laughs> like really, yeah. I'm going to be honest with you, we're probably not going to win. I don't know. Look at five thirty eight. But I don't know that that would prevent you from from actually playing hard enough to win. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, I, but you're right. That's this. But this probably might be the Kanye case. needed to believe that, right, for it to come true. Perhaps, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to. Yeah, yeah. Accept. It's possible. It's uh, yeah. And so I think that's so. What what James is saying in that line against Clifford is, you to have a rule that would force Kanye not to believe that, even though believing it would have made it true. That's got to be an irrational rule. Now I don't know like how you define what a rational rule is or an irrational <laughs> rule, but I, I get the point that there is something possibly too strict about a criterion that would prevent something like that from happening. Be- right for, for some for things. some things, yeah. There are other kinds of of sort of overconfidence effects that you have no shot. But also importantly, for some belief like that, like if I if I believe if I really believe that um, that say some somebody have a crush on if i really believe that they like me and even if it has a, a positive effect on them eventually liking me it might be not true while i believe it right so so that's where i think it really matters to have this pragmatist view of truth because james, i think james would want to say if it ends up working right if your belief ends up making this person like you then it was true and i would want to say well, it wasn't true at the time, but you're right, it did have a causal influence, and now it's true. Because otherwise, you know, you could say, I, they don't know that they like me yet, but I'm going to kidnap them, put it in my basement, <laughs> and then let's say she gets Stockholm Syndrome and, tr- and starts <laughs> yeah, to like you. See? I knew it. <laughs> like, there's something <laughs> fucked up about that. Right? I was right all you along. Know, I think we should pr- try to wrap this up soon, but this was a completely unintended uh, connection between segment one and segment two. I was just going to say, yeah, I was going <laughs> to. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the whole, I mean, I think that this is, you know, the fact that Tamler is sympathetic to James's view more than I am, I think is the, the, is the underlying factor in, in some of the differences that we have about our opinions about things like although we don't we, have the no we, we were, seem, were we don't we're, disagree as much about the as much the grad right, student thing right. but i do think that like and you you agree with this too that part of succeeding in grad school is not thinking that you have no shot to get a job 
No, um, but you know what I was constantly thinking when James was saying, giving that example of if you don't believe that someone likes you, then um, you're missing out on reaping the benefits of having a relationship with them. I think that actually there are cases in which having a uh, fear that you will fail does the better motivation, motivational work. So like just to give an example, my sister who got who was like a straight A student all of her life. Um, yeah. She would work herself into a frenzy, convincing herself that she was going to get an F on an exam. And, you know, if you're a Bayesian, you would say, you're fucking crazy. (laughs) There's no way you're going to get an F. But that's exactly what would motivate her to stay up all night studying. Right. And and so I think that there are cases in which the you don't need to believe something to be true for in order for it to help. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, that's true. I don't think James would deny that. Here's. So I think there's a lot that, uh, and, and there's a lot more to talk about. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the time that we exclude things, we're doing it because they're dead hypotheses to us and not necessarily because, you know, they don't meet the same evidential standard that we require for our other beliefs, um, if, if yeah. you know what I mean. So it, yeah. sometimes... I, I don't I think James might be right that we don't have the same standard of sufficient evidence for all of our beliefs. In fact, uh, probably there we have wildly different standards. And one of the differences then is that some of them are live hypotheses, and so we choose to believe them, or at least we're open to believing them. And others are not. And the reason they're not is not because there's less evidence, but because we, there's some other reason. There's some, like religious belief for a long time was like that for me. Uh, it still is, actually. I just don't care enough to want to believe it. For some people, that's not true, right? And then there are certain other things where I care deeply and so I would low my and maybe not know that I'm doing this, but my standard, my evidential standards would go way down. And maybe because I want it to be true or maybe because some part of me is drawn to it being true. Right. Um, so so I yeah. think so a couple things. One, I'm still not I'm still not clear what what James's distinction between live and dead hypotheses um, but I think you're right that we have different standards of evidence across different beliefs. And maybe this approaches something like a, a pragmatism, although not in a, the deep, like not in a deeply justifying way. Um, but the reason that I think we have different evidential standards often is because of the cost benefit analysis of being wrong versus right. So so I think it's it's OK for probabilistic decisions to have to say, you know, I only have a one in a, you know, 10 million chance of winning the lottery, but I'm going to play. Um, and when I say I'm going to play in some real deep sense, I believe that I could win. The costs are super low. Like if it's just a dollar for me, which is thankfully not a, a big cost, but for something else, like those same odds, if the consequences are that I'm going to die, right. I would, I would say that you're no. So I think that descriptively we use different evidentiary standards in some some ways, it's completely irrational because we want to believe certain things. Um, but in other in other instances, it might not be. Um, you know, the, ask your epistemologist friend for me. When the, the weather says that there's thirty percent chance of rain, 
and I take an umbrella, does that mean that I believe it's going to rain? And on James's view, is his pragmatic view, does he think that I believe I'm gonna, it's going to rain? It means you're a pussy. <laughs> I, I never do, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, yes. The, the whole idea of probabilistic belief is not addressed in this. You never hear him talk about things that are where you, like it's either suspend judgment or uh, all out belief. Does the availability of, of so many other beliefs now with our ability to, to have in-depth knowledge about almost anything, the live dead hypothesis thing is so critical to this argument that if he's saying that it's, uh, it's spurious whether or not something is you're inclined to believe it, like it's a matter of just the accident, then that leads to a very pessimistic epistemological conclusion. Only I, because know. you already start from a kind of foundationless epistemological standpoint. So I, it's, <laughs> I don't think he sees it as pessimistic, right? I think he thinks uh, yeah. that's just life that we are going that certain things are going to be live for us now again for this is what i was saying earlier i think if you are a scientifically oriented person one of those things maybe one of the biggest things of whether a hypothesis is alive or dead is the amount of evidence there is uh, in its favor but it's even for us, it's it's almost certainly not everything. Of there's all sorts of things about our background and our temperaments and what we've just read and what you know, what age right. we are, whether we've had a kid yet or not had a kid yet, and those things also influence whether a right. hypothesis is live or dead for us. So uh, I think that uh, that I I realize why I'm a, a bit of two minds about this this view as stated by James in this article. You know, James was famously a psychologist and a philosopher. And at some point, he abandoned psychology um, and just stuck to philosophy. But I think James is being a better psychologist with this than he is being a philosopher. So I think that it's actually a, a very nice way of stating how it is that people come to believe what they believe. Um, but I, I don't think he did, makes a good case for that being the criteria of what is true or not. Right. Like, you don't think it justifies yeah. the stance that... But it certainly seems right about how people, you know, come to believe certain things that, with little evidence. But I think the live dead, you know, just on that point, he's only trying to be a psychologist. That's just pure psychology, that there are certain things that are uh, that we're open to believing are true and certain things that we're not. And a big part of that involves... Uh, our background, temperament, passionate nature. The, the meta-epistemology underlying all of this, I think, is a sentimentalist one. It's one that's based on the emotions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, that's where we part ways because, you know, I'm not willing to go full-blown pragmatist about what truth is. But, but aside from that, you know, I, I do like the psychology, and I think it's an interesting way to think about truth. Because I don't see the sentimentalist view necessarily being pragmatic. Um, right. It is in the same way that I think you could be like an expressivist in metaethics, but not be a pragmatist about ethics. But they're very, there's a lot of overlap, and there's a yeah, lot of parallels. It's, yeah, you're right. It's a different claim. All right. Well, I think there's more to talk about, and we stum we've stumbled our way through parts of this. So yeah, I find it very really interesting, and it's worth a read. It just 
I really actually am a fan of that old, like the, the writing with just such utter confidence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> inserting phrases in Latin, speaking for others. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to compare it to the dry analytic style of any <laughs> yeah. contemporary epistemologist. I mean, you would get skewered if you tried to write that way now. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it is nice. And I think it's also, it helps to be William James. Your brother is <laughs> yeah. Henry James. Like, you, you you know how to write in this style, whereas I think a lot of people, if they tried it, would <laughs> You would not. sound like an ass. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, all right. All right. Uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.